Hello and welcome to Balagan, the podcast that will put things in order for a better understanding of Israeli politics. I am Kobe Cohen, a former political advisor and currently a political columnist and Israel educator. In many of my conversations with my American friends and family, I have noticed that Israeli politics is challenging to understand and quite blurry at times. So I'm here to explain how it works, who are the different players, and why the different players are acting the way they act. So if you're interested in getting what's happening in Israel, that's your place. My podcast will be thorough and brief, with many guests, giving you the best information about Israeli politics and society. It will deal with the structure of the political system in Israel, the different groups of interest, the players' history, along with analysis of what is happening today. I promise to be as objective as possible and guarantee it will always be interesting. So stay tuned. So welcome back to Balagan. And today I'm going to discuss with my friend Jeff Becker about the upcoming Israel and the United Emirates uh, deal that was announced on Thursday, August 13, 2020 by President Trump. Many were surprised by that move, and we are here to explain the meaning and who are the winners and losers of this deal. Jeff, welcome back to Balagan. Good morning, Kobe. So it was quite shocking for everybody. People were not expecting that Israel and an Arab state will have a peace treaty or normalization act in the near, or as we'll say, the near future. And suddenly this deal with the United Emirates came by and we wanted to discuss why it happened. Mm -hmm. So do you want to start with a guess? Why did it happen? I mean, and why now? Honestly, I think it was pretty inevitable that it was going to happen at some point. I think the Trump presidency expedited the process, but I do think it was going to happen at some point in the near future. And I say this because... Domestically, the U.S. shale revolution is allowing the U.S. to be totally self-sufficient in producing its own energy, even exporting its own energy. So there really isn't a need for Middle East energy anymore. I think that there's also been an increase in sentiment regarding isolationism in the U.S. So on both the left and the right, there really isn't a desire to continue having a U.S. military presence across the world in general, but, you know, if we're really focusing on where the U.S. has a big military presence, it's in the Persian Gulf. So the mix of this, the mix of U.S. energy self-sufficiency and the drawback of U.S. military personnel across the world, and specifically the Middle East, is leaving Gulf states' trade and security more unprotected from what we see as a growing Iranian threat in the region. So given that the Gulf states are faced with falling export revenue and loss of security and protecting Persian Gulf trade and transit, they want to formalize their alliances with Israel. And I think that the reason they want to formalize the alliance with Israel is because it serves as, one could say, an insurance package to keeping the U.S. in the realm to a certain extent as American security and American influence will be needed to combat the growing Iranian influence in the region. Well, you brought some great points, and I want to go back to what you said about the military issue, because eventually the U.S. has turned to be the world police in a way, and mostly, you know, throughout the Cold War era, but also in the First World War, Second World War, and even after the Cold War ended, the U.S. stayed the dominant force in the world, and things have shifted 
especially throughout the Obama administration and enhanced, actually, I would say, under uh, the Trump administration, who declared that he doesn't want to become the world police. And I think it hurts the U.S. in many ways because now China and the Soviet Union are aligning. Russia. And Russia, yeah, Soviet Union. Same, same, but different. You're you're calling me the recent graduate. You're the one who graduated decades ago, so. I agree. That's why I'm still talking about the Soviet Union. I still see the Reds. (laughs) But, you know, when you see that China and Russia are aligning against the U.S. and what happened now with Iran in the the embargo Mm -hmm. against Iran, the sanctions in the U.N., Okay, that Russia and China has vetoed it because they have a lot to gain from selling to Iran. Mm-hmm. I think it also came in as a counter reaction in a way. And I doubt if this uh, timing was a surprise for Trump at least. Mm-hmm. I mean, they both, Bibi and uh, Trump, both do have elections coming up. Well, Trump has an election coming up. Bibi may or may not have an election yeah. coming up. So do you think that the timing of this could essentially be good for helping their election campaigning for the U.S. specifically. And, you know, will this affect Netanyahu's position regarding his popularity in the Israeli public and whether or not he wants to go to an election? So if I want to touch the diplomatic effort and what they're gaining, I can definitely say that I assume that President Trump will try to bring both parties, you know, to a nice uh, treaty signing in the Rose Garden in the White House before November comes, because he believes, you know, usually, let's be honest, peace treaties and ceremonies are always a good PR. They're never a bad PR, you know. Sometimes the outcomes don't come out as well as you want, but the ceremonies and the signing uh, treaties is always good for PR. I don't think it will help President Trump because the way he handled the foreign affairs policy it was unclear. And the U.S. lost a lot of allies. I can say that actually in the Middle East, I believe it got stronger with the Arabs, especially with the Gulf states, because the Obama administration actually failed with the Arabs. When Obama made his famous Cairo speech, it enhanced the Arab Spring. Let's say it clearly. The Arab states are not exactly democracies and are not a role model for democracy in the world. And that's something that the U.S. is always failing to understand. And when President Trump actually came after Obama, one of the things he did, he went to Saudi Arabia. He was dancing with the king there, you know. His his first official visit was to Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And it made it mark. And there are more interests than that because most of the Gulf states are Sunnis. It's the largest stream in Islam, and they are all terrified of Iran. And a nuclear Iran is a threat, we must say. It's a bigger threat to the Gulf states and to Iran's neighbors than it's a threat to Israel. But Mm -hmm. it's definitely a game changer in the Middle East and in the Gulf area, and nobody really wants a regime like the Hayatollah's regime to have nuclear Iran. So... Going back to Netanyahu, I doubt if it will help him. Uh, Netanyahu has tried to pull a trick like that in 2011. He brought back the soldier Gilad Shalit, Mm -hmm. who was abducted by uh, Hamas to Gaza and was uh, in Gaza. He stayed in Gaza for two years. I think longer. He was uh, abducted in uh, 2009. It was the end of the 
No, you're right. 2006. Yeah. Right. Yeah. About five years. Yeah. Almost five years. You're right. 2006. It happened three or four weeks before the Second Lebanon War uh, opened. But the timing for Netanyahu was crucial because there were a lot of demonstrations in Israel and people were unhappy. It was called the Mechaa Chevratit. It was against the cost of living. And he was able to shift the whole media to discuss Gilad Shalit. And the state of Israel paid dearly. I mean, if it was the head of opposition, Netanyahu, he would probably call Prime Minister Netanyahu a traitor or some of his people would have called him a traitor because out of 1,028 Palestinians released, almost 300 of them were directly dealing with terror that uh, shed Israeli blood. So you think if Prime Minister Netanyahu had been in the opposition during the time the Gilad Shalit prisoner exchange took place and let's say the parameters of the deal were still the same, you're saying that had Netanyahu been in the opposition, he would have lashed out at whoever the prime minister was oh, at the time oh, definitely. for making a terrible deal. Definitely. Definitely. Now, this is not the same case because here we're talking about normalization of relations that actually established in 1994. It was the Rabin administration who formed the unofficial relations with the United Arab Emirates after the Oslo Accords. And ever since, we have a different type of relations with them, especially around intelligence and military, a lot of high tech that is going around. And eventually, once again, we share the same interest and the same fear of a nuclear Iran. So that would actually be a great benefit for Israel if it can officially work in a way from the Gulf area and not from Israel, mm-hmm. you know, checking up on what's happening in Iran. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of intelligence sharing. So, you know, from what it seems, Israel and the UAE have had under-the-table relations since the Rabin administration. Yeah created this informal uh, channel. And would you argue that, you know, we're talking about 2011 demonstrations and the Gilad Shalit prisoner exchange. Do you think that with the current demonstrations going on now in Israel, that this was an opportunity for Netanyahu to not distract the public, but turn their attention away from the demonstrations towards this historic agreement to help shore up his position and popularity with the public? I don't think it will um, help Netanyahu gain points in the media or in the public's opinion. Why is that? Because Netanyahu is already, you know, prime minister for 11 years now. So you either love him or you don't love him. It's that simple. You already have your opinion on him. He's not going to gain any more support from new audiences. And actually... I would say that the deal in a way hurt him with the right-wing base because Netanyahu was trying to show it, you know, he said peace for for peace and not peace for territories, but actually, you know, the United Emirates and Jared Kushner as well said that the annexation is off the table. And that was really important for, uh, let's say, the less pragmatic, messianic, right wing in Israel. Mm -hmm. They wanted to have an annexation. But let's be honest here. Netanyahu had many chances to annex the West Bank or parts of the West Bank or whatever. He had a full right wing government before uh, the unity government. Okay, until now, he's never done it. So what happened? I mean, I doubt if Netanyahu really wanted to annex the West Bank. 
but he is more of a, I would say he was using the annexation as an instrument to get the public's uh, attention. And uh, he's masterful at that. He knows how to handle the media every time it's something else. You know, one time it's Iran, then the annexation, then it's Hamas, then it's that. But one thing I can say that he's working by the same ideology that led him 30 years ago. He has a couple of books that he wrote in the past. Uh, one of them is called in Hebrew, Makom Tachat Hashemesh, which in free speech is that Israel has a place among the nations, as a nation among the nations, and that if we want to make a deal with the Palestinians, we better get the support of the Arab states. Now, the Arab states themselves, I don't know if today they are being led the same way as they were 72 years ago. 72 years ago, Israel was at war with all of its neighbors. And now we have only two states that we don't have a peace treaty with them. One of them is Syria and the other one is Lebanon. And we need to remember that, by the way, Israel did sign a peace treaty with Lebanon in 1983. And when the Syrians didn't like it, they invaded Lebanon and, they, and the new Lebanese government canceled the peace treaty. And that's what kept, by the way, Israel in Lebanon for many years later. It was one of the reasons, but it was a really big reason why Israel stayed in Lebanon for many years later. So these days, the Arabs know that they don't share the same interests. They have economical interest, they have a security interest. Look, the whole thing with the Sunnah and the Shia in the Gulf area, I know it's not discussed a lot, but it is a matter of uh, national security. I doubt if a nuclear Iran will really bomb Israel, because then it will mean, you know, to ruin the Temple of the House, you know, uh, Tarabite. Yeah, people <laughs> also don't mention this, but the Iranian leadership is actually pretty pragmatic. Like, within the Iranian government, there are a lot of systems of checks and balances between the parliament, the council of guardians and the president. I mean, you know, the issue with Iran is that a lot of people just don't know what goes on internally. A lot of it they do keep a secret, but it is a very structured system. It is, but you can never know. I mean, uh, when you look at the world, you know, you look at the uh, 1990, okay, when uh, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Nobody expected it. <laughs> or when the Soviet Union collapsed. Mm -hmm. Nobody expected it. Things happen. And you don't want to give the advantage to a regime like the Hayatollah regime. But I would say that in overall, the Gulf states has a lot more to lose from a nuclear Iran because it will uh, violate the balance that you have now. And Iran is the region's bully. I mean, in the Gulf area, it is considered to be the region's bully. And those states, actually, if we're going to touch, you know, what the United Emirates are gaining, I think I told you when we spoke, they would get a lot of weapon deals now. That is great for the American economy and the weapons industry. But it was already mentioned and it hit waves in Israel now that they are asking for F-35 and drones and a lot of weapons that may hurt the Israeli advantage that is formed, by the way, in deals with the American administration that Israel will always have the upper hand when it comes to military technology, even if the U.S. is selling it to its neighbors. And by selling, you know, stealth planes, it may violate this thing. By the way, it happened also with Egypt, but that was something that Netanyahu uh, was responsible for. Mm -hmm. I don't know how it's going to be handled, but the United Emirates will gain a lot of weapons now to arm themselves a little more with advanced weapon systems. I assume that we're going to see Saudi Arabia is also arming itself, even though they already did it with the new F-15s. 
So we will see that coming. Mm -hmm. It also, from the looks of it, the UAE is not alone in lining up to formalize relations with Israel. You know, there have been reports that Bahrain is looking to formalize relations. Oman is looking to formalize relations. You know, even spanning as far to countries like Sudan and Morocco, you know, it seems like there's becoming this big interest in the Arab and Islamic world to formalize relations with Israel. Do you think this all has to do with Iran? Or do you think that a lot of countries, let's say Sudan, you know, not in the immediate right. direct region, um, direct sphere of influence of Iran, you know, what would they have to gain from this? So eventually a lot of it comes to economy. States like Sudan, okay, needs Israel's agriculture and technology. Israel is very advanced with irrigation systems, agriculture technology, and the water de- uh, de- uh, desalinization. Desalinization. Yes. Exactly, <laughs> this one, this one. <laughs> so states like Sudan, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, Bahrain, they all need water. Especially in the Gulf area, it's all desert. And when we're talking about average temperature in the summer, we're talking about in the shade, the average temperature in the Gulf area is 37 degrees Celsius, which in Fahrenheit, I think it's more than 110. And that we're talking in the shade, Mm -hmm. not a direct sun. So they do understand that eventually their interests and the Palestinian interests are not, you know, it's not the same. So they will figure out a way to maintain the relations, but uh, also to keep the Palestinian interest alive in a way. But it's not going to be a barrier anymore for these countries formalizing the relationship with, uh, normalizing the relationship with Israel, because Mm -hmm. they have a lot to gain. I would say, to sum it up from my perspective specifically, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the U.S. shale revolution, untapped energy resources which are being discovered across the U.S., along with a growing sentiment of isolationism and the lack of desire to be the world's police force amongst both sides, right and left of the American public, is resulting in this drawback of U.S. influence from the Middle East. And, you know, we're talking about F-35s and the UAE wanting all these military deals. So I think that the Gulf states and a lot of the Arab world sees this withdrawal and are really looking for security guarantees yes. in the midst of this withdrawal. Definitely. And not only are they looking for security guarantees, but they also realize that on top of that, formalizing relations with Israel can lead to investments in agriculture, technology, health, all stuff that can benefit their public as well. So I think there's a growing combination of things that are all really starting to come together. But if you ask me, I would say that the U.S. withdrawal from being the world's police force is what's really driving this desire to, you know, ultimately for the Arab states to start throwing the Palestinians under the bus, formalize relations with Israel, and reap the benefits from that. Well, I want to touch the Palestinian issue because I don't think the Arab states are throwing the Palestinians under the bus. I think that the Palestinians has made tremendous errors and ongoing errors throughout the years. They suffer from poor leadership, and we can't put Israel in charge of everything. You know, Israel uh, obviously holds the West Bank and eventually is controlling Gaza in one way or the other with the gas and energy and water and uh, closing the borders. But eventually, okay, the Palestinians have never really tried 
to promote, coming with new approach mm-hmm. uh, on how to solve the situation. It's been the same narrative from their side for decades. Yes. Listen, if you people, have... People get tired of the same narrative. That's why you got to switch things up. People are tired of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in overall. I think that both sides are losing public's interest. You can see it clearly here in the U.S., even among the American jury. I think that, you know, now the situation between state and religions and the fact that, you know, the reform and the conservative movements are not welcomed in Israel takes a bigger place in the Jewish conversation. But the Palestinians definitely need to figure out what they were doing wrong and how can it be that the Oslo Accords already signed in 1993. What happened since then? I mean, they had Yasser Arafat, who was a horrible leader and eventually didn't really ban arms and stayed a terrorist until his last day. And Abu Abbas, who started well, by the way, he still keeps the Israeli security interest intact. You can definitely say that if Abbas had a different interest, then Israel would have suffered from the West Bank because he has the weapons, he has the people's struggles and the frustrations, but eventually he's keeping his own interest as well. So the yeah, Palestine- he has his own status quo that he's looking to preserve, exactly. his own personal status quo. Exactly. And by the way, that goes to a deeper cultural issue that once again, even if you'll go to the other Arab world, you know, the other Arab states, you have the cultural states like Saudi Arabia and the Gulf countries, if we're talking about the United Emirates, it's seven different emirates, you know, it's seven different kingdoms in a way, Mm -hmm. that it's basically a tribal community that grew, and now they need to import uh, workers to, (laughs) you know, to develop their countries. So if you'll go to states like uh, Lebanon and Syria, Iraq, even Libya, One of the reasons that they stay in this ongoing civil war is because eventually those are all tribal states. You have different minorities fighting over power. It's not really a nation state in the pure sense of a nation state. Besides of a common language, they share nothing in common. So really, you can make the argument that there's a big lack of trust amongst Arab states and formalizing relations with Israel also gives them more of a stable ally to kind of keep an eye out on everyone else in the region. Definitely, as long as they share the same interest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as long as they have... And I, you know, for the Gulf states specifically, I think that interest would be keeping a lid on Iran. And I think keeping a lid on Iran also entails keeping a lid on uh, potential Shia uprising yes. within these Sunni Gulf states. Because look, it's, it's not a secret that the Iranians are looking to grow and become a Hamagony force in the Gulf area and in the Muslim world. Mm-hmm. Now, the most likely next state to fall into the Shia's hands is actually its neighbor from the West, Iraq. The largest minority in Iraq is actually the Shia minority. They are 65% of all Iraqi people. So... You know, one of these days, it can happen that they would tell their brothers, uh, you know, hey, come join us. You know, we were hunted for years by the Sunna. Come and join us and uh, we'll retaliate. Mm -hmm. You can never know what will happen in Iraq. And the Gulf states are really worried about those things. I mean, they have a right to be worried because if we're talking about Iran and Iraq specifically, there has been precedent for the Sunni-Shiite conflict evolving in a big conflict. I mean, you know, the whole 1980s between Saddam Hussein and the newly founded Iranian regime. And a lot of that had to do with 
know, a mix of Saddam Hussein trying to get some more oil in the Khuzestan region. But um, from the Iranians' perspective, they also wanted to export the revolution to the Shiite community in Iraq. And that was an entire decade of war. You know, over a million people died. Yeah. So I think that's the bulk of the Iranian military leadership fought in that war. So they are pretty battle tested. And a lot of the Sunni Gulf states understand this. And it scares them. They see what the history is, they see the precedent, and they see that Iran is growing. So that mixed with U.S. withdrawal from the region, it's all these things coming together, making a real bad mix for the Sunni Gulf states, all these things coming together at once. And they have to take drastic measures to find a solution, because at the end of the day, that's what governments want. They want security and they want to stay in power. So if formalizing relations with Israel is a drastic step in order to ensure that, then they're going to take it. Yeah. I agree with you. And especially when they see that Iran is actually spreading out, because you can see that the Iranians are now formed in Syria. They're helping President Assad in his uh, war against the rebellions in the civil war in uh, Syria. And they have a serious stronghold in uh, Lebanon with Hezbollah, which is also, you know, if we're talking about Lebanon, which is a different tragedy. Hezbollah is a Shia organization. It's a fundamental organization. It goes against the big devil and the little devil, you know, uh, the U.S. and Israel. And now, technically, Iran can maintain, like, a really long, I would say, uh, space of influence from Iran to the Mediterranean if they are going to get stronger in Iraq, because they are already in Syria and Lebanon, and I don't think they're going to go anywhere. Iraq is essentially what will link the dots between all of them. It'll connect it all. So, you know, with... Iranian control over Iraq, they could essentially have a direct linkage right up to Israel's border on the Golan Heights, the Israeli border with Syria. Yeah, and I think we can speak a lot about it. We can make a separate episode about Iran and what's going on between Israel and Iran. But eventually, I think that it's a good deal. Normalizing the relations between Israel and the United Emirates is a great opportunity for both sides. Everybody, almost everybody is winning beside the Palestinians. (laughs) But they It's a win-win situation, and I think it will bring more Arab states to collaborate with Israel. And, um, yeah, so thank you for joining me again, Jeff. Yeah, it was always great for you to have me, Kobe. Always great to be on. Yeah, so thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and looking forward for the next one. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.